The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Uh, I've been talking about patience the last several weeks. And uh, just so you know, I'm sort of off schedule. So now uh, Wednesday is the first day the talk is given. So if you were here Wednesday night, this would be somewhat similar to what you heard. And then Sunday night is the last time I give it. But we'll get back on track with Sunday being the beginning and Wednesday being the end in, in a couple weeks. So uh, those of you who were here last week, you maybe remember I mentioned something about patience, that it's, uh, it's really a means, to, a means through a threshold, because we often think of patience as being able to grimly endure what's unbearable. And uh, maybe there are moments in life when that's all we can do, is grimly bear what's difficult to bear. And that kind of capacity to slog through life is probably a skill that we should have. When all else fails, that's what we want. But it certainly wouldn't be considered a long-term strategy. I mean, who would want to live a life that is just a slogging through, getting by? We wouldn't. We'd want to get distracted is what we'd want to do, or we'd want to get idealistic, you know, kind of whip up some false enthusiasm about something. But with patience, real patience isn't just about grimly bearing what's hard to bear. We should feel, even in a simple moment of being patient, there's some immediate benefit or positive that we should see when the heart or mind is being patient. And you know, the easiest way to talk about it is, in that moment, we're not impatient. Like when we, maybe we're feeling fidgety most of the set, and then for whatever reason it occurs to us, okay, just, just land or just release into the experience of the body, into the restlessness of the mind and body, and we're there. In that moment, we want to notice. Now, I said it it's happens, but it doesn't mean we're going to notice it. So we need to remember to notice what a relief it is not to be resisting our experience, not to be needing things to be other than they are. That is its own kind of liberation. It's simple. It's not earth-shaking necessarily. But in terms of turning this corner from always resisting, always reacting, always trying to fix, always looking for something better, to have, in a moment, at least put that down in that moment. Well, that's a different kind of life, a different way of being. And we want to, um, celebrate is too, big of, too much of a word, but you get the idea. We want to acknowledge that patience is something positive. There's a relief and release and something beautiful in a moment of patience, a moment of connecting. Because what we're demonstrating to the heart, to the conditioned mind, is you don't have to struggle. You don't have to resist. You don't have to slip into distraction or denial. There's this whole other option, which is just to be, just to be relaxed, just to be clear, just to be open. 
I mean, when we think about all the inevitable ups and downs in life, isn't it amazing that that's an option for us? You know, th just go back through your life and think about some of the high points and some of the low points. And as we think about those high and low points, to imagine, well, there was always the option just to be present with that high point or that low point. Not to need to make something special out of the high points. This is happening to me. This is going to change my life. Or not to dwell on the low points. My life is ruined. I don't know what to do. But just to feel the sadness, to feel the grief, to feel the confusion, or to feel the joy, to feel the excitement. And in, in this sense, to see that, to feel that as an impersonal phenomenon. It's just, oh, this is the experience of joy. This is the experience of grief, sadness, anger. thought it would be good tonight to talk a little bit about um, just the experience of restlessness in life because it's so pervasive. Because we're not resting with patience or opening with patience, we get in this kind of locked into this habit of resisting and reacting and denying and distracting. And it parallels sort of the greater flavor of our culture, which is a flavor of restlessness, agitation, and ongoing burning, you know, the burning of always having to do, having to think, having to become. In Buddhism, this word that's used is bhava, becoming. And the particular cycle, you know, the dependent origination cycle of that is because we're misperceiving things, we're seeing things from a self-centered point of view, this whole apparatus of mind and body gets set in motion. And as soon as it gets set in motion, well, because this mind-body thing here is sensitive, we're constantly having sense contact. Can't help it. And then as soon as we have sense contact, whether it's something we see or something we think or something we feel tactfully in the body, as soon as we have sense contact, well, the mind interprets it as pleasant or unpleasant. And then we react to pleasant and unpleasant or neutral. We ignore what's neutral, we try to hold on to what's pleasant, and we push away what's unpleasant. I mean, we can hear this a hundred thousands of times, but just understanding this basic habit is so important. This is what the conditioned mind does. It ignores neutral experience, whether it's mental experience or physical experience. It grasps after pleasant, trying to hold on to it, and it pushes away unpleasant. And becoming comes in when, when we react to sense contact that way, that conditioned habitual way, then it, it uh, the reactivity builds. We, we basically make an identity, or we feed the ego on that reactivity, that pushing of, away of the bad, grabbing onto the good, ignoring the neutral. And it becomes becoming, what we call becoming. 
We become the person who doesn't want this negative, unpleasant experience. We become the person who's ignoring all the neutral experience. We become the person who wants this pleasant thing to continue into birth and death and the continuation of misperception. And it's this is the sort of technical definition of what in Buddhism we call samsara, cycles of suffering, the repetition of cycle, uh, the cycling through suffering over and over again. It's this very lawful unfolding. We're misperceiving as a misperceiving, based on the misperception, this whole mind-body sets in motion. We have sense contact. We react predictably to the sense contact. That builds a sense of self, the reactive self, feels real. Because we're hurting, you know. When we react in these ways, it hurts. It gets tight. And that sense of tension confirms, seems to confirm the sense of self. Confirms that I actually do want that. I really do want to get away from that. I really don't care about all this neutral stuff. That's what that tension confirms. And it just builds steam. Enough steam to keep taking us into the next moment and maybe even into the next life, the next, the next, the next. And it isn't hard, you know, to, to lean back a little as we look at our lives and look at the culture and see very clearly that this restless becoming, the restlessness of becoming, always becoming, wanting, always wanting, this really is a good definition of the lives we lead. We lead lives of becoming, as opposed to lives of contentment and peace, right? So one of the things we can do, one of the great roles for patients is to clarify this predicament. Ajahn Sumedho talks about this uh, situation in his practice when he was a monk in Thailand under Achan Cha in the northeast Thailand. He spoke a dialect of Thai that's very similar to, to Laotian. So Ajahn Cha was very popular and, and energetic and uh, he would give very long talks, three hours or longer, almost every night. And he'd want his monks to be there. And he'd, you know, he'd go into town to the local city temples to give these talks. So it would be a lot of bustling and a lot of worldly activity, you know. And Ajahn Sumedho, this Western monk who was there practicing in the 60s and early 70s, you know, he wanted to be alone in his little kuti, his little cabin or platform out in the woods alone meditating. That's why he went to Thailand. Not to be sitting, you know, in the middle of a village with loudspeakers and Ajahn Cha talking in a language he couldn't understand for hour upon hour. And uh, there was a period in his practice where he was just fuming about this. You know, he'd just sit there, getting angrier and angrier, more and more restless, thinking how stupid it was that he had to be there, and on and on. You know how our minds can go like that. And then Ajahn Chah would just look at him at some point and say, in a, with a beautiful, radiant smile, Are you okay? <laughs> and all of this anger and frustration and restlessness would just fall away in a moment. And so eventually it occurred to Ajahn Sumedho, wait a minute, that's so strange, you know, how 
big and terrible and inappropriate this feels in one moment, and then in the next moment, it's not a problem. So we really took it up as a practice. Not that sitting in the middle of a village listening to a talk he couldn't understand was good, but what, was, what he realized was good is there was something here to learn about his mind, about how the mind can make something so big, seemingly so real, and then it disappears. How can that be? And in another time, he had a really powerful insight. It was a similar time or related time in his practice, but he was out practicing in a cave, and another of his uh, Western monks was practicing in a nearby cave. They were really into it, really into being serious Buddhist monks and practicing a lot. And, and uh, evidently, the local village was just blasting music with their, their loudspeakers. And he noticed it coming up again, the same sort of self-righteous anger. And uh, just, just building. And you know, when you're really sensitive, when you're doing a lot of meditation practice, it's not like there are fewer emotions. It's in a way, there's just a lot of energy in the mind and body. And it can express itself in all kinds of ways, not just wholesome ways. So he got really upset there. And then, it, then an insight, a very powerful insight, arose in his mind where he realized that it wasn't the noise that, the pro that was the problem. The problem was what he was making in his mind, his anger, his restlessness. That's what was really unbearable. The noise wasn't unbearable. The attitude in the mind, the anger in the mind, that was unbearable. And this is something we learn from patients. It's like uh, the thought, the very deep conditioned thought that, you know, whatever it is for each of us, because our conditioning isn't exactly the same. So for you, you know, your condition may be that, you know, if this happens to me, if, if I have to live in Minnesota, that is unbearable, you know. And then, for whatever reason, you end up moving back to Minnesota, and here you are. And that thought should be very powerful. You know, nobody should have to live through winters like this. It just isn't fair. And we can create a lot of suffering, but, but we know that even if we look, forget about other people who seem to be happy, even if we look at our day where we really don't like being here in Minnesota, we'll see that the hatred for the winter isn't in every moment. There's some moments when it's fine. And if we actually notice those moments with mindfulness, it makes it harder to really hate winter in those, in those other moments when that hatred or that aversion is getting triggered. So a lot of things feel intolerable, like even the pain in our backs or the pain in our knees when we're sitting. If we focus on it with the wrong attitude, it can feel completely unworkable, inappropriate, almost like somebody is torturing us, like the person who thought of meditation to begin with. <laughs> what were they thinking to sit still, you know, especially in a group where you feel embarrassed to be moving around? What were they thinking? How can this sitting here with this pain, this is just not workable? But it's amazing if we notice in another moment when we're distracted and thinking about something else, the pain doesn't bother us. 
So part of the pain being unworkable, it isn't. It, part of it is the actual uh, physical sensations in the knee or the back. But the bigger part is this froth we rip, whip up, the me who doesn't like the pain, the me who feels threatened by the pain. And that can get very big, as big as the universe. It can fill the mind and actually become, in a sense, unworkable. But that isn't a fixed thing. There's another way, there are other ways to relate to the pain. And so this is really the invitation of, uh, of patience, is to not necessarily in the places in our life that are most intense, but we can just begin in the places that are moderately difficult for us, moderately upsetting. And we can just ask the question, well, maybe not so. Let's see. So kind of welcoming it in, creating some space in the mind. Or like I suggested in the guided sit, you know, we breathe in and we practice opening. We exhale, we practice resting. Inhale, seeing it as it actually is, not with our, not through the eyes of our reactivity, but in a more clear, honest way. What is actually arising in this moment? What are the sensations? What's the, what is the thought about the sensations? Well, let's just look at the sensations, because maybe these thoughts don't actually correlate, represent the sensations. So we go back to the. Well, it's just this throbbing, this aching, this burning. It's just this. And we realize how much of our misery in life, how much of our suffering is this added peace. And this is what dukkha stands for. You know, the word we use for stress or mental suffering in Buddhism is dukkha. It's really pointing to what's extra. There's ordinary and unavoidable, unpleasant mental, mental and physical unpleasant experience. Completely unavoidable. We're all probably going to lose people that we really care about. We're all going to have disappointments. We're all going to bump our heads. We're all going to be cold and hot at other times. And these are unpleasant experiences and unavoidable. For the most part, you know, no matter how confident you are, no matter the fact you get yourself in the perfect climate, it's not perfect. It may be more perfect <laughs> than Minnesota, or maybe different than Minnesota, but there's no such thing as, you know, a utopia where physically and mentally it's always beautiful, always pleasant. It just doesn't happen in this realm of existence. At least, it doesn't seem to to me. But we can live in this imperfect realm perfectly, so to speak, in the sense of not adding any additional stress to the very ordinary up and down in life, the, the gain and loss, the pleasure and pain, the fame and the disrepute, the praise and the blame. These are the four worldly winds that the Buddha talked about. So the question is, can we live at ease in this experience. And as we as we move in that direction, you know, that's really what the sitting practice is about. It's sort of a microcosm of life because we have mental experience, we have physical experience. Sounds like life, right? <laughs> Here we are. But the container, you know, the form of sitting down on a chair or sitting on the floor, 
in a quiet space, the form reminds us to relate not with our habits of reactivity, grabbing what we like, pushing away what we don't like, ignoring what we don't, what's neutral, but to relate with patience. So it's really, you know, each moment of our sitting meditation practice and then eventually our daily life, it's really this choice between restlessness or relaxation, a kind of stillness. And this is a, it's a difficult idea to get initially, but the more you practice, it should become intuitively clearer, this stillness, the, the, the sort of what juxtaposes restlessness. Because going beyond restlessness doesn't mean we somehow change the whole world, you know, the frenetic nature of our economic lives and our social lives. I mean, there's a buzz there. There's a buzz in cities. I mean, one of the things I mentioned this morning in the talk is I lived in New York City for two years, and before that I, I lived on the East Coast um, during my young adult years, and I often would go through New York, and I, I noticed how alive I felt whenever I was in New York. And then once I moved to New York City, I lived on Manhattan, uh, in Manhattan, and I, I realized, oh, it's not that I feel alive, I feel agitated. I was confusing the two. You know, it's like sometimes we mistake feeling alive and energized with just being agitated. And uh, I realized I didn't like it. I hung out. I was living in a meditation and yoga center, and so it was sort of a somewhat of a refuge. But even then, you know, you could always hear the buzz of the city. And uh, the place is just alive with human mental energy. I mean, it's just sort of like a vibrating orb of neurotic thinking, <laughs> which some people really like. And maybe in small doses actually can be appreciated. I think maybe so. But what we want to understand is here, even in this city, we don't have to constantly be feeding on that kind of energy. We basically, well, we pick it up from each other, but we also, you know, reinforce it in our own minds. And it's like a, a morphic field that we just get sucked into. We sort of begin to play out. We feel like the only way of being is this way of restlessness. We approach everything with restlessness. And if we don't really have the energy for it, there are ways to do it. You know, we put on the loud music, or we drink coffee, or colas with caffeine, or we, you know, we make noises, you know, kind of rev up the energy. But we have ways of stimulating the mind because we feel like, well, that's what it means to be alive. And actually, we were afraid of feeling low, or dull, or quiet. Now, I'm not saying that we want to be depressed, like, well, that's the way I teach the path of depression. <laughs> it wouldn't be very popular. But so the key isn't about being low energy. Uh, it's about when we feel, when we feel the restlessness inside of us, around us, we don't want to feel compelled to react to it. That's, that's the difference. 
actually we end up feeling more alive when we're not reacting to the energy around us. Because what happens is it makes an imprint in the heart. It's like we're sensitive to how alive it is. It's like if you if you run in, you're feeling pretty quiet, let's say, and then you run into one of your friends who has a lot of energy. It's a big charge about something. Now, the habits often in our mind are to sort of react to their charge, to sort of get into the same froth that they're in, or to oppose it. Both are an agitated state. Either we vibrate similarly to them, same frequency, oh yeah, 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 or you know, we think, oh, you know, no, no, no. But either way, we're kind of in that agitated state. But there's another option, which is to be really porous and open, which means that we're actually vulnerable. We're, we're allowing ourselves to be exposed, to be sensitive to the energy around us, to our own emotions as they come and go, but also the psychic, I guess, energy of those around us or the city we live in, so that we actually feel it, but we're not letting it land. We're not grabbing a hold of it. This is why the Buddha you know, used this teaching of non-clinging as the, the summation of his whole path. I teach the path of not clinging, not clinging to this or that, to good or bad, to self, to I, me, or mine. It's about not clinging. So it's not about being insensitive. It's not about be, not being alive, not feeling energy. It's not clinging to the energy. It's learning how to be transparent, which actually means being more sensitive, not less sensitive to the energy around us. I read an article, um, or a chapter rather, from Sharon Salzberg's book, <clears throat> Hardest, Widest the World. She has a chapter there about patience and restlessness. It's called Resting the Exhausting Mind. I wanted to read a few sentences from this. Doing nothing, or what the Taoists call, call non-doing, does not mean shutting our minds off or going to sleep. But it does not mean resting, but it, uh, but it does mean resting, resting the mind by being present to, what, uh, to whatever is happening in the moment, without adding to it the effort of attempting to control it. Non-doing means being at peace. And then she goes on to talk about becoming, this bawa that I mentioned earlier. In this state of becoming, we are subtly learning, leaning forward into the future, trying to have security, a feeling we can hold on to, trying to keep things from changing. We are continually out of balance in this state as we even try, as we even try to feel the next breath while the present one is still happening. When Buddhist teachers talk about letting go or abandoning or renouncing, they are talking about dropping the burden of becoming and returning our awareness to the natural center of our being, returning to a state of natural peace. The movement that is uniquely helpful in meditation is to come back, to relax, to let go of leaning forward, to let go of grasping. We can relax even from the anticipation of our next breath. We settle back, return to the present, return to ourselves. This is what is meant by non-doing.
So in this sense, you know, our exhausted minds are a big help. This natural wisdom, really, that has probably developed, slowly developed in all of us, where we're suspicious of the restlessness, of the agitation, of the doing, the constant doing, the constant judging. We start becoming suspicious of it. And it's backed up by this authentic feeling of restlessness, I mean, of exhaustion. It's like we, there's almost like a inner gravitational pull for peace, for stillness. But it's not like wanting to be dead. We don't actually, I mean, we may misinterpret it and think, oh, I just want out. Get me out. But the Buddha was very clear, this is not the path. This is just another kind of desire. So, you know, there's three kinds of desire according to the Buddha. The desire for a sense experience, which we all know well, even as simple as like wanting to be home in bed. That's a desire for a sense experience. There's the desire to become, that I talked about earlier, where, and as Sharon just mentioned, like that sense of leaning forward into life. I want to get away from the pain of my body. So I want to become the person whose knees are relieved, you know, if your knees are hurting now. Or I want to become the person who has financial security. Or I want to become a person who has a loving partner. So we have a lot of becomings, and they, they, like Sharon says, they throw us off balance. Because then we become this stream of wanting. We're ungrounded. We're not, we're not valuing, we're not honoring this moment because we're in the thought of who we want to be. So it's an unstable place. It's a place of dukkha, of suffering. And then the third kind of craving is craving to be done with it all. So when we start having real insight about how constantly craving sense experience and constantly craving becoming, when we get how exhausting that is, we can mistakenly assume that wanting to be done with it all is an antidote to all that exhaustion. But it's not. It's just, in a sense, another kind of becoming. We want to become the person who's done with it all, wanting things to be over. So. With the Buddha taught in a middle way, or a way that is not any of those three ways. And we call it, you know, you can call it different things like equanimity, or stillness, or peace. But it's not a peace or a stillness that somehow needs the world to be frozen. Even then, people get confused about that because they see common ground, they kind of pick up the vibe here, people are a little quiet, you know, we don't make a lot of noise, mostly because people are often meditating in this room, so when you come in, people are generally quiet, but if you want to talk loudly, you can go in the community room. But there's just, in general, a vibe here about being kind of quiet. But the idea is the stillness, we need to learn something about the heart or mind that will allow us to be in this busy, imperfect, moving world that we live in, unavoidably. But there's something about simplifying the movement can reveal something. 
Like if we wanted to notice this possibility or this background of stillness or peace, we, we're not going to notice it if we're in a, in a situation that's triggering a lot of our conditioning. So you want a daily sitting practice or a meditation center to go to where a lot of your agitation isn't getting triggered. Because then we can discover something. We can discover that although the mind moves, you know, thoughts are moving, the emotions are moving, and although sensations in the body are constantly moving, there's something that isn't moving. And, you know, you can't really name it in any good way, but you can try. You know, people try. You can call it like the space of knowing doesn't move or the space of the present moment doesn't move. But we can start to intuit that which doesn't move, the stillness or the unconditioned. And it changes our relationship to everything that does move. Our thoughts move, our emotions move, sounds move, sensations move. All of what we normally take life, the world to be, it moves. But right now, because we don't have it really deeply intuited, stillness or the unconditioned or freedom, we just literally get swept. We become the movement. We feel unstable. It's disconcerting to feel unstable. So we're constantly trying to create stability with instability. It doesn't work. We use thoughts which are inherently not stable to feel grounded and stable. We use relationships which are fundamentally not stable to create stability. We use money. We use all kinds of things, experiences, to have real stability. But they don't provide any real stability. And it's, this is a, just another way of talking about the cycles of samsara, why it's so frustrating for us. So the whole point of the quiet, the sort of form of meditation and the form of retreat practice and the form of having an urban meditation center, the container you know, that we try to create here and create when we go on retreats or have retreats here is really not meant to be sort of, uh, we're creating some utopia and we're trying to like always live inside of a meditation experience or a retreat experience. It's not really the way. The idea is there's something we need to learn and it's best, it's easiest learned in a simple environment where a lot of agitation isn't getting triggered. But then once, the more we learn the more we have that intuitive insight about stillness, about peace, about what doesn't move, then we know how to relate to movement, which is not clinging to it. But right now, it's all we know. All we know is things that move, thoughts, ideas, sensations. And so we're clinging. We, we take the movements of life very personally. We cling to them and it causes a lot of suffering. So I'll leave it here so that we have time to hear from each other. I'm sure people have learned a lot over the course of your lives about restlessness and patience and impatience and going beyond restlessness. And you might have questions about the talk. That would be great to bring up, too. And please say your names. Now, is this mic helping? It sounds a little loud. Is that what is it? Yes. Turn it down a little bit. Oh, maybe that's it. 
I wasn't sure if it's the battery going out, if I'm too loud. See, I normally don't use it, but there have been several people recently that have had trouble hearing. So does that sound better? Yeah. OK. Sorry about that. Is that why you were plugging your ears? Yeah. Well, you should have said something. <laughs> don't be shy. <laughs> well, you just told the story of the guy in the mall. We're going to call you the trooper. <laughs> the one who does what he's told. <laughs> oh, good. So in, in the future, if ever it's too loud or you can't hear me, please let me know. So thoughts that people have. Yeah. things that happens as as we in layers you know or in bits we learn to um, release our attachment to activity so there's still thoughts there's still emotions still sensations but now in a sense the heart isn't reacting to it so there's more of the harder mind is resting or um, getting established in the simplicity of simply knowing things. And what happens in that experience is there's a kind of um, unification of the energy of the mind. Because when the mind gets attached to an idea, like while I, I've been talking tonight, and even now a little bit, I, I, you know, I'm not, I usually don't use a mic, as most of you know. and so. I'm constantly like thinking about like is this helping or is it worse, and then, and so my mind is sort of going in different places, and that sort of multitasking, worrying, planning, analyzing, judging, comparing mind—it's a real dissipation of the energy here in the moment. And when the mind isn't reacting to what's being felt and known and seen but just is in more in that simplicity of knowing, then that energy, in a sense, is all collecting, unifying. And it, and it gets really powerful, but it's in a potential state, because precisely because it's, you know, the way energy leaks is through the process of identification or attachment. It's like the mind energetically kind of links up with something. And it's a leaking of energy or a dissipation of energy. But when the mind isn't doing that, the energy builds. And that experience of the energy building, the mind becomes yieldy and wieldy and, and uh, nimble and very bright. It's in this potential state. So when there is something appropriate for the mind to do some activity, 
it can do it. Like, for example, to remember how to practice in this kind of situation. You know, so little moments of thinking, little moments of analyzing, little moments of judging, comparing, you know, the things that we inevitably need to do with that mind can be done very efficiently. But then there's no trace because it's not, that activity isn't happening because of attachment. It's more just a, a functional mind as opposed to a mind living out of some attachment or identification with what it wants, what it's afraid of, what it doesn't care about. So the mind becomes very functional. It still operates, does what it needs to do, but it's not uh, always leaking energy. You know how it is. It's like <clears throat> if you're really um, caught up in some activity, you're exhausted by the end of the day. But you could be doing something else that takes a lot of mental focus, a lot of, but you feel, you know, you, you will feel different at the end of the day. It's the attachment, identification, the worry, the fear, the greed that's really exhausting for the mind. But uh, in a more, just to repeat what I said earlier, Kevin, in a more technical sense, the energy of brightness is a potential energy. It has no particular agenda in and of itself, but it's available. Now, this is what's often difficult in retreats, is people get a lot of that potential energy. And so then when they do see something attractive or repulsive, they react with a lot more energy than they have in normal life because it's been building you know, that potential energy. So then when this happens on retreats, for example, we call it yogi mind. And because people do weird things, they things get are much bigger than they I seem much bigger than they actually are. So somebody sniffling in the back of the room, can people can actually get deluded and think, oh, this person is doing this on purpose to bother me, you know? I mean, this happens in normal life, but it can happen in a more exaggerated way on retreats, where because there's so much energy that when it does leak into something. Like, like once on a long retreat, a three-month retreat, just a thought. It was like a casual thought. My wife was having an affair. You know, of course, I hadn't talked to her in months at this point, or weeks and weeks. So I had no idea. But just a thought came to my mind. <laughs> Maybe now. <laughs> but, but anyway, the, it just created a little leak, you know, where... You know, my mind kind of picked it up. It got identified to that mental image. You know, and there was a little storm, but that little storm now had a mind that had a lot of energy. And the mind is like a very capable of creating beautiful videos, like living 3D Dolby sound about the possibilities. You know, so it's very uh, intoxicating. So the fantasies, the dreams, and even casual thoughts on retreat can be very hard to handle. And it, and it actually creates a very narrow way for the practitioner because we have an incentive not to let the mind leak because when it leaks, it really tends to leak. It's hard to draw back because there's a lot of energy that can flow there. So you learn this uh, basic lesson, which is it's a lot easier to catch things right when they're about to happen than 15, 20 seconds let alone two hours later, where then the, your whole life is poured down this little portal. And, it's, and it, 
the whole energetic system gets very entangled, and it can take a long time then to unhook and to let all of the physical and psychic tension that's been built up in that hour to slowly relax and release. Other thoughts people have about the talk tonight? Mm-hmm. Anne. Well, no, I think it does fit in. And I, I mean, as long as we ground it in our own experience right now, because this moment, if it's true, then it's true in this moment. So, you know, we just ask ourselves, well, what, what reality are we living right now? Because we're, we're all experiencing some reality right now. Well, what is that reality that we're experiencing? And we realize that depending on the particular moment, there's a whole range. Sometimes our reality is just our thoughts about things. That is our reality. You know, we project a set of thoughts about who I am or what's going on right now, and that is the sum total of our reality in that moment. See, the, where that question can get confusing, can become confusing, is when <clears throat> we think we're going to define reality once and for all as one thing. But it's a very fluid thing that gets created moment by moment. And in terms of the practice, what we're trying to do is we, we're recognizing that because of our habit energy and because of our collective habit energy, we're, we're being pulled into a particular a reality that has a particular flavor. It isn't a one thing, this reality. We're creating it, but we're sort of helping each other co-create it. With our, you know, the sort of force of our habit energy, and so we we start to notice that, and like, well, how does that feel? <laughs> you know, how does this reality? How is it working for us? Is it the kind of reality we want to live in? No, it isn't. It's an agitated, heavy reality. And then it, so we begin to explore. Well, is there anything we can do about that? Well, we begin to see that it's a fluid thing. And that the more identified and caught up and attached and reactive, well, that has certain implications for the kind of reality we're experiencing in any given moment. And the more we that let things move, but realize a stillness or a peace that's it's not different than the movement. It's right here with the movement. But realizing that 
space or that stillness in the midst of the movement, well, then it sort of, it adds a, in a sense, it adds another dimension to the reality we're living or that we're normally experiencing. And this other dimension really frees the heart up from its clutching, its gri- gripping, its grasping to this reality of movement, you know, wanting Anne wanting to be successful or Anne or Mark wanting or Mark not wanting. It's like all of those thoughts can be thoughts in our mind. We can have preferences. We can have hopes, but we don't have to grip them. And it really, that's a different reality to be and to be Mark, to have a personality, to have habits, to have conditioned things that I'm conditioned to like and conditioned to not like, but not to grip it, not to hold tight. That's a different reality. And it's like, it's really, I think, this image of a different dimension coming in. You know, we're in a two-dimensional world and all of a sudden there's this third dimension called peace or freedom. And there's still the two-dimensional world, but now it's it's interpenetrated, or however you might say it, with a sense of freedom or sense of peace or stillness. So we don't have to grip on what moves. We can rest, moment by moment, rest and let things, let the movement happen, let the personality happen, let the thoughts happen, let the activity around us happen. And it's not that we're passive. The personality is freely moving. It's part of the movement. See, we're not going to save this personality because it's part of the world that moves. All of our habits or conditioning, it's part of nature. So the stillness is not that. It's something... uh, uh, independent of that, I guess we could say. So it is a different reality, in a sense. Now, a lot of people are trying to deal with their, you know, they intuit this exhaustion, this suffering. They intuit something's off. But they always, we always feel compelled to deal with it by creating a different reality uh, based on the things of the world, you know. We always feel like if we could just rearrange the world in the right way, then it would be okay. And this path, and most spiritual paths, are really saying, you know, it's not about the world. It's the relationship we have to the world that's the problem. And that's really what, you know, the practice addresses. Other thoughts people have? Yeah, Jamie. this this morning and on Wednesday night because uh, I had a really interesting conversation with Ajahn Punadama who was here a week ago Monday <clears throat> and 
we were talking about morphic fields and some of the scientific and, and anecdotal evidence about morphic fields and how we're all living in, in, you know, and influenced by these morphic fields. And we create our own little morphic field from our own thoughts, but then we're sharing, we're kind of in the morphic fields around us and, and in concentric circles. So there are many overlapping morphic fields. And we're unavoidably sensitive. We, we may not be conscious of them, but we're unavoidably sensitive. They're having their effect on the mind. And um, getting upset about it doesn't help, you know, and fighting it uh, in a gross way doesn't help, you know, like trying to insulate ourselves. Is, you know, that's also a mor morphic field, you know, like that's sort of the survival like instinct, you know, get myself, get my guns, get my food, preserved food, you know, and just, you know, put myself in my bunker. And, but we can't really, um, you know, I, I'm not even sure these morphic fields are even local. Like they, there, one study I, I talked about this morning in the talk, uh, that Ajahn Punadama told me about were these garbage cans in Toronto that were made to be raccoon proof. And uh, it's just an example of how things are non-local sometimes. So, you know, for a while they were pretty effective. Evidently they were hard for even people to, to get their garbage in. The raccoons figured out how to get in. And they found, and there are many studies like this, that once a few raccoons mastered it, it very quickly spread in ways that didn't seem to be possible just through somehow learned behaviors, you know, watching other raccoons do it and then, but that somehow it affected the morphic field. And there are other examples, you know, you can read about of this kind of thing. So when, when we're in a, a community of people where fear is really uh, alive, like in the United States now, it seems that fear and divisiveness are just really alive. And no matter how much we think we're above that. I mean, I find myself being, I feel it all the time. I feel it's easy to be divisive. It's easy to be caught in fear. And uh, our only hope is to be very honest with ourselves that this is the morphic field we're living in now. And we have to respect it. We have to respect it by paying a, a lot of attention to it. Otherwise, if, as soon as we're unconscious, it will be directing us. The only hope is to be aware that this influence is there to be fearful, to be divisive. And then there's a hope we can feel the compulsion to follow it, but not actually follow it. But we have to be aware of it. So that's your job, you know, in that difficult, you know, situation to be, to feel. It's like it is appropriate. It's useful to be sensitive. It's not pleasant to be sensitive but it's useful to be sensitive because then you know what's at play in the situation. And uh, you can sort of uh, rally your clarity not to be confused by what you're sensitive to, like to feel what's uh, alive in the room at the meeting or whatever, but not to let it um, color your decisions. It's just like with our prejudices that we have. I mean, the worst thing we can do about our you know, the ways that we've been conditioned to be prejudiced is to pretend we're not prejudiced. You know, to put it, to make it subconscious, but to know that, you know, I have these ideas about Jewish people, or I have these ideas about people with colored skin, or I have these people with, you know, 
then at least there's a possibility that uh, our behaviors won't be so destructive. So we have to be aware of our lust and what we're attracted to. We have to be aware of our aversion and what pushes our buttons. But we don't want that because it's intense to be that sensitive. But it's that sensitivity that really strengthens wisdom. Like, and I'll just end with this because we're out of time. But wisdom arises precisely because of the sensitivity. Because it's unbearable without wisdom. It's unbearable to be this sensitive without the wisdom of stillness or peace or equanimity. Without that, nobody would want to be. We'd want to drink. We'd want to distract ourselves. We'd want to sort of bury our heads in some pretty suburb you know, with the perfect job and the perfect family or the, you know, whatever, whatever we have, or some of us, you know, in the wilderness, you know, we'd have, we all have our own particular trip of how we want to escape, which ultimately wouldn't be an escape, you know, it's just an imagination we have. Let's take a few seconds and let go of the words. Maybe take a breath together. I appreciate being here. Appreciate these wonderful practical teachings that are available. And we can be inspired to put them into practice in our own lives. It's a very deep, wholesome way of taking care of ourselves and also taking care of others. So may each of us, each in our own way, support the causes and conditions for peace and wisdom and compassion in the world. And thanks again, everyone, for coming. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.